Waiting sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> I wanted to keep that going longer, but in that kind of, like, waiting like that, I have such, well, in this case, first-person embarrassment, but, like, it's such intense second-person embarrassment that I just cannot... There's a whole genre of TV shows that I can't do, like Mr Bean through the office to Parks and Recreation. Like, I just cannot watch it because I cannot bear waiting in that uncomfortable feeling at all. Maybe you're like uh, my wife and daughter who can't bear waiting for public transport so much that they cut it so fine that reasonably often they miss it. <laughs> then they've got to wait for longer. <laughs> waiting sucks. This is a psalm about waiting. It's about waiting. It's about remembering. It's about asking. And then it's about waiting. Waiting for God. It's long-term waiting. Not waiting for a bus, not waiting for a talk to start, but long-term waiting for God to act, to do what we believe he will do, but what he hasn't done yet. Psalm 126. If you don't have it open, it'd be a great time to, to, to flick it open. It's a psalm of, of remembering in the first three verses. Verse 4 is about asking God. And then the final two verses, 5 and 6, are about waiting. Remembering, asking, waiting for God. So have a look at it with me. It starts off remembering what God has done. See that there, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Even the neighbours recognised the goodness of God here. It was said amongst the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist agrees, verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The author of this psalm knows that God has done amazing things for the people of Israel in the past, bringing them to where they are now. He's restored the, the fortunes of Zion. Zion was the mountain that the temple in Jerusalem was built on. And here it kind of stands in for the whole people of Israel. But there's something incomplete about the restoration of fortune here. Because in verse 4... The writer of this psalm asks God to do something more. First he remembers, and then he asks in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes. Act now. Act again. The Negev was a, a desert area to the south of Israel. It had a, a regular dry season, and then rains would come and restore the land on a yearly basis. Our local translation might be, God, restore our fortunes, make Warragamba Dam the right amount of water. Like, not too full, not too down. The poetry needs a bit of work there, but <laughs> that's the idea, right? Restore our fortunes. If the restoration the psalmist talked about in verse 1 was fully complete then he wouldn't need to say verse 4, right? If everything is okay, there's no need to ask for restoration, but he does. 
I get the feeling that this psalmist and all of Israel with him is in a bit of a dry desert period. His water level is a bit low. So he remembers what God has done in restoration. He asks God now for restoration. And now he's waiting for the good things of God to come in the future. Verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. You see, what's going on now will be overturned in the future. Verse 6, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. He's remembering, he's asking, and he's waiting for God. Now, you might have noticed that this one is not a psalm of David. There's a little superscription at the very start of this psalm that says, a song of ascents. You might have noticed as you're reading through the psalms that lots of them have this little title. Uh, Now, just kind of a quick aside about how Bibles are edited and published uh, for us. There's lots of work that editors of Bibles and publishers of Bibles do to make the Bible reading experience for us more pleasant. So we have, like, paragraphs. And, I mean, there's a whole thing about nice paper and readable font and all sorts of other things. But there's headings all the way through. And if you open your Bible to any random page, you will see a heading like this. I just did that. I got Matthew chapter 2. There's headings of the escape to Egypt and then the return to Nazareth. All of those headings are put in by editors of the Bible to help us just navigate around. Otherwise, we just get this big block of text. It's really hard to find the passage that you're looking for. With the exception of the Psalms. In the Psalms, all those little headings, they're in in this black Bible, if you've got one of these from the back of the church, it's there in italics. It says, a song of ascents. That's part of the Bible text. That's part of what was originally written in this Psalm. It's probably put together by the editors of the Psalms way back when, but this is part of our Bible text. And so it helps us to understand who wrote the Psalm, where it was used, what it was for. There's all sorts of different directions. Sometimes it's, you know, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, something like that. The other Psalms that we've been looking at in this short little series on the Psalms have been Psalms of David. If you go back and look at Psalm 3 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 22, uh, and I think it's 145 next week, all of them in the little superscription, in the little title on the psalm, say, of David. As in, they are a psalm written by David. Now, why is that significant? Well, in this little short series, we are focusing on praying these psalms with Jesus. And a crucial part of reading the Psalms well and then using them for ourselves is to not only understand uh, what it's about, but where it was originally written and where it was originally used. The Psalms of David, the Psalms written by David and spoken by him, are songs and prayers written by God's Messiah, by God's anointed king. And the direct application of psalms like that, of psalms of David, written by the anointed king, is to the Messiah Jesus. 
And that's what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. If you've been here for uh, our short little series on Psalms, Psalm 16, a couple of weeks ago, talks about the Messiah, whose bones will not be broken, his body will not see decay. And the Apostle Peter, in Acts, helps us to see that this is really, truly, about Jesus. His bones weren't broken. His body didn't see decay. Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah that is being talked about in Psalm 16. Psalm 22 is a cry of anguish, but a comfort also, a confident hope of restoration. And Jesus calls this out on the cross in his time of suffering. And so it also looks forward to his resurrection and his restoration as Lord and Christ. And so the way that we can take these psalms and and pray the same things in times of anguish or hope, uh, well, it's because we are united to Christ. They're first about Jesus and then they are about us. This one, though, is a psalm of ascents. And it doesn't say, of David. So, what do we do with this psalm? A psalm of ascents, or in other translations, it's a song of steps. Uh, I thought for a long time that this meant, like, it's a psalm that goes up to God or something. Uh, It's actually literally about walking up steps, of climbing. Climbing a hill up to the temple. This was a song of kind of preparation for the whole congregation of Israel as they were gathering together to worship God. On the way up the hill, you sing a psalm like this. And there's a whole collection of them. If you flip back and forward a page or two in either direction, you'll see a whole lot of different psalms of ascents written by different people at different times. As they were approaching God... This psalm was for them to remember what he had done, to ask him to act, and to wait for him. We could maybe call it a psalm of Molden Road. As you're coming up the street to church, to be together with God's people, well, remember what God has done, ask him to act, and wait for him. Many of you know that my work is in Bible translation. I work with a Bible society. I work with a whole lot of people in lots of different places as they translate the Bible into their languages so that they can read and understand it well. Uh, Recently, uh, this past year or so, I've been working on the Psalms with the Pijantara people, Central Australia uh, and, and down into South Australia. Turns out Psalms are really hard to translate in basically any language. Uh, because it's not just a case of making sure that the content is communicated accurately. Like, if you retell a, a story from the Gospels and you kind of hit all the major points and you say all the things, but you, you say it in a bit of a different way, then you still actually communicate the narrative quite well. If you translate poetry like that, it's often not poetry in the end. Psalms need to feel right. And so... As we're working through this, as we're checking the Psalms with the Pigeon Jarrah translators, I often ask them, what does this one as that we're reading, what does this one feel like? As we go through, does it, does it change? Does it make you happy or sad or, or want for something? Not just what does it say, but how does it make you feel? Because these are, they're words of a song. There's emotion that's built into a Psalm. 
I think one sign for me that the translators were doing a very good job of this was when, after we checked a few, they actually started to sing some of the newly translated psalms, putting them to music, to some church music that they had, uh, that they knew elsewhere. They took these new songs and they could see how they worked and see how they felt and they started singing them to tunes that they knew. This song, Psalm 126, it starts out pretty triumphant, very thankful. There's a recollection of the history of Israel. It's talking about coming back from exile when God acted mightily to bring them back. They're being restored as a people. They were rescued. They were restored to their home and restored as a nation. So when God restored our fortunes, the psalmist says, it was like a dream come true. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Even the nations all around recognised this goodness of God to Israel. There might be a bunch of fist pumping going on in the congregation as we sing this bit. The music's swelling, the band's going off. And then there's a shift. Verse 4, between remembering and asking. Maybe there's some strings that come in, just in the background. Yes, God has done great things for us, but he's, he's not finished. We're not done yet. Maybe a few discordant notes here and there. Bit of a shift to a minor key. I mean, it's not timid. It's not backing off because there's still confidence that God underlies this request. We know the God that we're asking to act We know that God loves his people. He has restored them. He will restore them. But still, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. We're not there yet. Then the last two verses, they're looking forward to when their current situation is reversed. Maybe the the chords of the melody of the first section come back again, but they're changed a bit. Because there's a current situation of weeping and waiting that will be transformed to joy by the same action of the past. The same God is the one who will restore their fortunes. He has. We've asked him to do it now. And we're confident that he will in the future. He'll release them from captivity. He'll turn suffering into peace. In the Psalms of David, the Psalms written by David, we can hear them first as a Psalm of the anointed king, the Messiah. They're Psalms we can either imagine Jesus singing as the Messiah, descended from David, or in some cases, we literally just read straight out of the New Testament that they were on his lips. This one, this is a psalm of the the congregation leader leading the people as they come to worship God. But the same step applies for us. We can remember, pray, wait, just like this psalm, with Jesus as our worship leader. Because he's head of the church. Through him we can approach God. Crucially, we know that Jesus, well, he is, as we've declared in the creed earlier today, 
He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God himself. He's come as a man. He experienced all the things of humanity with us. The same things that we do as humanity created in God's image. He came. He waited. You might remember the episode in the Gospels where Jesus goes out into the desert. He's tempted by the devil. Uh, Luke 4, if you want to look it up later. He's tempted by the devil. He's tempted to take the easy way out. Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He shows all the kingdoms of the world to the Messiah, the rightfully anointed king of God. And he says, all of these kingdoms, everything that you see before you, all of this can be yours right now. All you need to do is just bow down and worship me. There's no need to go through the suffering of the cross. There's no need to follow that plan. You can have all of this right now if you just walk away from God. That's the temptation for Jesus there. You can have all of this if you just walk away from God. And Jesus resisted. He took the longer way of waiting on God. He knows what it is to look back on the good things that God has done, to ask him to continue to do so, and to wait on him through hardship, to wait while weeping going out to sow seed, to wait in hope, entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Sometimes, for us, that kind of waiting can get resolved quite nicely. Earlier this year, uh, another group of people that I was working with in translation uh, is a really remote little village in Vanuatu. Uh, sounds like paradise, it kind of is. Uh, it was a quite remarkable place. Very remote, on an island that's only a little bit bigger than Greater Sydney, it took four hours on, in a Land Rover to get to this little place. And it wasn't actually all that far away, so very rugged place. And a group of people, they had a very old translation in their language done by a missionary about a bit over 100 years ago. And it's the kind of language that they can't read very well anymore. Their language has changed. Uh, the translation was quite wooden to start with. And so... They got together and they basically came up with a translation revision process by themselves, which is wonderful. They got together, they put an old, they got the old verse that they were working on, they wrote it up on a board. They had a, a good news Bible and a revised standard version around in the church. And so they kind of had all of those open and kind of tri triangulated and worked out what the meaning was. And okay, so how do we say that in contemporary language? And just kind of worked their way through the three Gospels that they had translated. But along the way, they were thinking, we're a tiny little village, a few hundred people, no resources. I don't think we can ever get this published. They couldn't see a way for this work that they were doing to actually benefit the current and future generations, which is what they were doing it for. And they told me this story when I turned up with the Bible Society of the South Pacific to see if we could work together. I'm like, this is amazing. You guys have kind of done all the hard work. Printing it is the easy bit as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes that kind of waiting on God 
wraps up really nicely, works out really well. I mean, we haven't published it yet, but it's going to be a a pretty straightforward process for, for that to happen. Sometimes, though, we don't know what will happen or how. Many of you know my wife, Christy. Christy has about half a dozen different long-term chronic illnesses. Uh, Has many of them for about 20, more than 20 years. Each of them, in isolation, are not that bad. There are other people who have these kind of conditions that are sort of worse on the scale, but there's lots of, she has lots of them, and they kind of interact in various ways. And it just makes life complicated. We've worked out how to live and cope and manage, but we're never quite sure why God has chosen this particular path for us. I think it's hinted at, though, by the number of people over the last couple of decades that we've been able to talk with about hope and perseverance and, yes, life sucks at times, but I'm sure God has used it to shape us in various ways, but getting taught lessons is really a very enjoyable experience. So right now, we wait. Wait for the harvest. Singing this psalm, or praying to God in the pattern of this psalm, Praying this psalm with Jesus as our worship leader gives us more confidence than the psalmist had. Praying it with Jesus as our worship leader gives us more confidence than the person who wrote this psalm. Because we can look back on the immense restoration of our fortunes. Jesus Christ died for us. He's applied that in our lives. He's united us to him by faith. I'm sure each of you as Christians can point to the way that the work of Jesus on the cross has worked out in your life. He's dealt with our sin. He's brought us access to God the Father. And you can probably point to the circumstances or the people that God used to make you know that. God has been good to us. And so we can be confident in asking God to act in our lives now. It's a pattern of prayer that we often follow in church. In fact, our whole church service has actually worked like this. We have remembered the good things that God has done for us, as we said the creed. We're going to ask him to act shortly as we pray together. First, we give God thanks for who he is, what he has done. We bring him our requests, and then we wait, confident that he loves us, that he knows us, that he's able to act. Paul says that in the passage that we read from Romans 5, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace that we now stand. God has given us relationship with him And just like the psalm, we can look back at the good that God has done for us. In Jesus, God has restored our fortunes. He has done that. It's like a dream come true. We can can be joyful because we have, by faith, access to God. We stand restored. And then Paul says that we can also glory in our sufferings. 
we can praise God even while we wait for him. Because we know, Paul says, that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope. God works in us to produce hope. Hope that we can wait on him. And hope that isn't in vain because it's based on a previous assurance of what God has done for us. At just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, we can wait for God. It was the same with Jesus. It was the same for Paul. It's the same with us. Same with the psalmist. God has restored our fortunes. So why don't you join me in asking for him to restore our fortunes now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been good to us. So now we ask you, restore our fortunes. We know that you haven't finished yet. And by your spirit, work in us while we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.